Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. My next guest, Brandy Olson, is an engineer of learning, a published author, and an organizational designer with decades of experience helping leaders and organizations get real work done. As a founder and thought leader, Brandy believes we should not have to choose between doing good, important work and living gracefully in our own humanity. She tries to help teams discover their real flow and get to a place of deep engagement, high performance, and genuine happiness. This was one of those conversations that will leave you with hope, and it is in hope that allows us to take our next steps and change. Enjoy the conversation. Brandy Olson, I'm the founder and CEO of Real Work Done, and we work with leaders to design organizations and teams that can get real work done in reality, where things are changing all the time, the problems we're solving are super complex, um, because I deeply believe that reality is the only place that good work happens. So the sooner we jump in and understand what that looks like, um, we can get really pragmatic about how to do better work together. I love that you said reality is where work happens because, well, let's just let's just kind of acknowledge the fact that we're in times where um, we sometimes question reality, right? If you mm-hmm. if you read the news, if you look at what's happening in the industries, if you um, pay attention to the economy and all of this, there are times we sort of feel like we're inside out, upside down, um, depending on the analogy you want to use. Um, mm-hmm. Stranger Things, right? Like depending on <laughs> what world you're in. Um, yep. So I love, I love the fact that you call that out. Like, uh, you know, the importance of naming reality and standing mm-hmm. in reality. I'm curious, like, how you sort of set the pin uh, of the arc of your work there um, to to begin with. For me, it goes all the way back to, well, I mean, you could probably go all the way back to when I was a small child and my mom would talk about how passionate I was um, in helping her understand my reality. And I think that's just been a thread throughout my work. But long ago, I used to be an educator and I was a high school special ed teacher. And one of the things that was so important to me as a teacher was that I really needed to understand how the work I was doing was impacting my students. So the outcome of it really mattered. Um, Mm. But I also just didn't have any time to spare for anything that didn't help me do my job better. And so, you know, in the world of education and now, of course, in the world of like organizational leadership and um, the ways, you know, we think about high performing organizations, there's so much advice out there and there's so many 
um, directions about best practices and what you ought to be doing that just exist in this fantasy world. And if they don't help us show up and do our jobs better and the messiness that it is with real humans who, you know, it turns out work in some very particular ways, um, it just gets in our way and it's a waste. And I think there's just an abundance of important work to do in the world and we can't afford to waste our time working ineffectively. And so reality for me is like just the starting point um, because it's so much easier to find better ways of working when we accept, when we make visible, when we acknowledge what's true and real than it is to try to create some sort of fantasy world that isn't ever going to be. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm a real pragmatist. Um, and so for me, it's the, the thing I often tell leaders that I work with is the, uh, we talk a lot of times about, you know, you need to have courage. And I think one of the things that we need the most courage for whether you're a leader in an organization or in a team or, you know, working in your community is the courage to make reality visible, which isn't always easy to do. I, this is like music to my ears right now. <laughs> and I so appreciate that we're <laughs> not only connecting on this topic today, but, you know, there's a couple of things you said there that I, I want to make sure to sort of honor and give grace to and allow mm -hmm. people to sort of allow it to sit with them. And, and that is one that you were a, an educator. Two, that you were a special, mm -hmm. special needs or, you know, special education teacher. Um, I think, you know, I come from a family that has a lot of educators and, um, and some of them are special, you know, special needs ed educators mm. also have, you know, family members with, uh, you know, special needs. And one of the things that's been sort of the biggest teacher for me along this kind of journey of life is that sense of understanding what someone's reality is what their real mm -hmm. experience is and you also use the word fantasy which i thought was really interesting too because we i mean you can understand this obviously in your work um but it, it is so almost addictive for organizations to spend more time in the i call it fantasy casting so sort of like <laughs> we're gonna broadcast this or cast this out so that people feel a sense of, you know, inclusion, belonging, vision, certainly those things are wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I believe, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, none of those are attainable or achievable if you are starting in a place where someone doesn't acknowledge your real experience, doesn't meet you in your reality, and doesn't ask for ways in which you can get from said real place to potential desired end state. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's so interesting that you frame it that way, because I think it is also a trap, right, to be constrained by reality. Also, yeah. what is true is that what's real for me can be real for you in a very different way. Um, and so our perspective and the meaning we make from things that are happening, like there's a within reality. And by that, I mean, just like the way humans actually exist and work in the world, Um there's room for multiple opinions and mm -hmm. multiple perspectives. And so reality isn't about having everybody think the same way. It's also not about being constrained by what currently is. I think we also have to have, I talk about sometimes like pragmatic imagination, right? We need to be able to imagine future reality that right. is different than what we're currently living in. When I think about reality, and I haven't really 
connected the dots this way until you, you know, talked about just some of your own experience with um, people with special needs or disability. But one of the things that's true about um, people who experience disabilities is the level of disability is often determined by the environment, not the individual. Yes. Right. So the reality that I think about is really the reality around the environment that we create. Like as humans, our brains work in particular ways. It would be nice and convenient if we had an unlimited store of energy that was never depleted and we could just go on and on and on like the Energizer Bunny. That's just not how humans work. So it's not how we're going to get good work done. Humans yeah. also interact in particular ways. Like those, those things that shape the environment and just the kind of table stakes of who we are and how we show up, that's the kind of reality that we need to embrace and welcome so that we can get to the job of figuring out how to do better and how to create um, a better reality for us all. I also really love that you kind of discerned for, for, for those that are kind of thinking about this and listening, the discernment between the environment reality and what the experience is like for that person. And I think sometimes I think we, we as humans feel called to want to solve something, right? Mm -hmm. To make, to make impact. And given the options, I think sometimes it is more attractive to solve for something that is environment driven or, or mm. within our control than it is to inquire, be curious, lean in, hold uh, uncertainty, and even, you know, duality of what someone's mm -hmm. true experience is. And so given that option, and it's really interesting that you mentioned this in the world that we're in now, you know, we were talking a little bit when we, when we, you know, first connected about the industries that are being impacted by a lot of change right now. I reside in the tech industry, and that's certainly uh, encountering a lot of um, change. And what's really mm -hmm. interesting is there are some people out there that are positing that is some of what we're seeing um, a reaction or groupthink or a response to environment as opposed to mm -hmm. understanding what might the true needs be in order to endure a really challenging economy right now. And it's it's not hard to see that there has been a little bit of um, domino effect, right? Mm -hmm. Company to company, industry to industry. Well, if they're doing this, then we have to do that. Um, and, I, and I worry a little bit about are we missing the sort of golden threads and potential uh, gems uh, mm -hmm. by just taking this, like, let's solve for the environment and hope it gets better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, often say, like, hope isn't a strategy. Um, and I think that 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 group thing happens, that spreading of like, well, um, if, you know, other people, other people are doing mass layoffs. Maybe we need to as well. Maybe we need to cut things. So we have this, you know, of course we see um, this like short-sighted, you know, focus on the quarterly profit report or, you know, a lot of tech companies are beholden to their investors, their venture capital firms. And, um, and that part of the reality there is let's just name what's actually happening. Yes. Right. And be real that the outcomes that some companies are after right now are not 
market outcomes are not long-term performance outcomes. They're outcomes that their investors want about how much money they're going to get back this quarter. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's part of reality. Let's name that. And then we can start solving that problem or figuring out what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that there's so many ways in which we kind of get sucked up into the like illusions and delusions about what's happening. And, and if, you know, if you're in a company and you lead a company and you want to play that game, that's fine. You're probably not going to be around um, to really be leading the market and creating the real innovation that we need in the world. And um, your vision of performance is, is pretty short-sighted. Yeah, I, I also think there's, a, there's an element to, right, every every action creates a reaction every reaction creates you know another action and and one of the things that i've found just in these past weeks and months is something that i think you you talk a lot about which is the um sort of the purveyor of calm waters and i -hmm. have i have the opportunity in my day-to-day role um to to be sort of the bringer of calm for lack of a better Mm -hmm. term Right. Mm-hmm. You may not find that on a job description in in sort of my my realm. But when people talk about what the value is that they seek and they want and that you bring, they often cite something like the bringer of calm. You're the bringer of calm um, mm-hmm. or that you can bring people together in a in a state and a frequency where they can do some of that deeper thinking, not multitasking, mm-hmm. not scattered not bifurcated. Mm-hmm. So you talk a lot about that in some of your work. And, and I personally think that is something that is not only misunderstood, but far underutilized and under underused when we talk about the power of calm. So I would love for you to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that because it's, I mean, when I connect with people, especially recently, if I do a one-to-one connect with them, if I pick up the phone and I call them, one of the first things that you don't realize you're giving them a gift is an opportunity to just sort of catch their breath and be mm-hmm. calm to then allow them mm-hmm. to access higher thinking. Yeah, because one of the realities is our, our human bodies and our brains work in particular ways. And, and that's an area where I started to get really interested in a couple of years ago as I was working with a lot of companies who were doing a lot of like the right things in some ways, right? Like they're really focusing on how do we um, organize ourselves for change? How do we get really focused on our customer? I, I work with a lot of technology companies, product organizations, and, you know, that really human centric view on, you know, how do we really create value for our customer? And yet internally, they were operating at this level of constant, um, Context switching, I call it organizational multitasking, where you're pursuing um, so many priorities and goals at the same time that quality starts to suffer and humans start to suffer. And so I got started getting really interested in like what's actually happening um, in our brains. And this is part of the reality is our, our brains work um, in a particular way. And so when our brains are calm and free of stress hormones, we are able to 
function, um, the, the part of our brain that does most of our, our work is executive functioning, which is the part of our brain that does problem solving and communication management, listening, understanding other people's social cues, creative thinking is in this category, mm-hmm. perspective taking, mindset shifting is in this category of executive function skills. And when we are calm, when our bodies feel less stressed, we are able to work through our executive function activities with greater effectiveness and speed. Um, when our bodies are stressed, the executive function part of our brain shuts down. We go into survival mode. One of the things that's really interesting about that, though, that shows up in so many of our organizations is one of the executive functions that our brains do particularly well, um, but that we kind of uh, turn into a trap is context switching. Context switching is what's really happening when we talk about multitasking. Mm -hmm. Context switching is when we shift from this conversation to the to-do list that I've got to do next or when we're in back-to-back meetings all day. When we're in back-to-back meetings all day, our brains are constantly context switching. They're trying to constantly identify what's the goal of what I'm doing here and what are the rules of engagement? Who are the people around me? What are the rules of this assignment? We go back and forth through that all day long. And the stress hormones in our brains um, increase the stress activity in our brain increases and our brain starts to respond in a way that's more of a survival mode, mm-hmm. not in a critical thinking mode. And so we literally can't do some of the work that's so important to do solving really complex challenges when we are in that heightened state of stress, context switching, competing priorities, multitasking, our whole bodies just shut down. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that many organizations are struggling to get the outcomes that they want. So you're putting way more energy and time into context switching and competing priorities than into actually doing the work. And there's no way around, like there's ways around that, but like we can't change how our brains function. This is the result of millions of years of evolution. Um, And we're going to do a lot better as humans working together if we work with the way our brains have evolved than if we try to change our DNA and try to work against the ways that we have evolved to work together. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that you laid that out because it what it does for me is it reminds me of the powerful thing I learned years ago. I've, I've been kind of this, you know, geek nerd over neuroscience in the past mm-hmm. 10 years, right? Because of what you just said, the, the, the more that we think we can understand the brain, uh, the less that we know about the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the there are some things that we are able to measure and understand and deduce. And one of the phrases I picked up probably about a decade ago from someone I was either reading or following, probably on a non-being episode, to be, to be honest <laughs> with you, was um, the neurons that fire together wire together. Have you heard that? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And absolutely. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that just makes sense. Right. I mean, it's it's almost like if you look at an electrical grid, the mm-hmm. the pathway in which um, you know, electrons fire uh over neurons in the case of our body, they like anything take the path of least resistance. And mm-hmm. The body, if nothing else, is an energy conservation mechanism. So mm-hmm. we are always trying to conserve energy for the exact reasons you talked about. When we need mm-hmm. to get into that fight or flight state, 
we need to be able to access those reserves of oxygen, of, you know, of different hormones in order to stay alive. But one of the things we realize, uh, and I think I shared this in, in a podcast I was on last year, was the concept of not being able to discern between a saber-toothed tiger and an email from your boss. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and when you have this sense of, as you described, context switching and multitasking all the time, we, we essentially fire off those alarms multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. And so our body can't tell the difference between there's a saber-toothed tiger <laughs> that I need to run mm-hmm. from and an email from my boss. Now, both of those could be completely benign, right? Like nothing can mm-hmm. happen, but the damage is already done because our mind has gone to a place where neurons that fire together wire together. So the path in which we take gets flooded with cortisol um, and so shuts down the executive thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And I like that you call it out because we don't realize it's happening until mm-hmm. someone gives us permission to honor, explore, consider mm-hmm. that it's happening. It's like a permission yeah. granting gift we need to give a lot of people in organizations. Would 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 that be the case, do you think? I see that over and over again, right? A hundred percent. Because so here's two really interesting things that go right along with that. The neurons that fire together wire together. Also, our brains are incredibly adaptable. So if you look into the world of neuroplasticity, which is how mm-hmm. our brains change and adapt over time, we can rewire and refire and change and cultivate different responses. Yeah. Our executive function capabilities is what helps us do that. Here's the thing that's super important to understand about executive function, though. This is another one of those reality things. The sooner we just embrace it, the sooner we can move forward. That our brain can only perform one executive function at a time. It's called the bottleneck phenomenon. This has been studied over and over and over again, and I call it the like most inconvenient thing about how humans work. Because it would be so much more convenient if we could um, perform all of these executive function tasks at the same time. Multitask, power through it all but we can't. And because our brain can only perform one executive function task at a time, Mm -hmm. we are spending our time in a constant state of context switching or managing competing priorities. It's not just that we're spending our time doing that. It's that our brain literally cannot at the same time also um, make meaning of a novel situation. Notice the communication patterns that we're stuck in. Look at a problem in a different way. We can't do it at the same time. Now, our brain can switch back and forth between these executive functions rapidly, so rapidly that we rarely, you know, are cognitively aware of it. But doing so costs us more calories and more oxygen in our brain. It's literally more energy intensive to be bouncing back and forth between these executive functions all day long. And context switching is one of the most caloric intensive activities that our brain does. It's really highly complex. And yet it's the thing that most of us, if we work in any sort of organization with a lot of important work to do, spend our entire days you know, doing. Um, so where this comes into play is the noticing piece. So when I'm working with a group of leaders, I'm often sketching out um, a couple simple graphs to teach them a little bit about context switching and the cost of context switching. One of the graphs that I sketch out 
just shows the research that says if you're working on one priority or project, you get to spend um, 100% of your brain power kind of solving that problem. If you're working on two things, trying to make progress on two things at the same time, without, you know, attention to what you're doing and how you're focusing, you spend about 40% of your time just managing the switch back and forth between those two things. If you're working on three things, you spend about 60% of your brain power just managing the switch back and forth in a way that at a certain point stops adding value to your work. Um, And you get only about 40% of your brain power to actually do the work. And when I draw this out and when I help, you know, leaders and teams understand um, why it's so exhausting to be in back-to-back meetings all day, and not just that they're tired, but the real cost that comes from that, I often see these like visible size and changes in body language um, that come with this recognition of like, oh, you mean I'm exhausted and it's not because I'm not a high performer? Um, You mean that like there's a real reason in my brain that this is exhausting and it's not just a deficit on my end that I can't just go, 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 go. And that permission to start to notice those things is the most powerful step forward. Um, Because when it's unnoticed, when it's unconscious, we really have a hard time making changes and doing things differently. But when we can start to notice it and bring it into our awareness, now we unlock our full like human potential to learn and adapt and change. And what's even greater about this is, is, is kind of goes back to where we started, which is that exercise you take leaders through, organizations through, it's it's an example of them understanding their own reality mm-hmm. with data to back it up. Because to your point around the noticing, we I think we as humans, but we as knowledge workers feel this sense of I have to be solving, inquiring, producing, writing, um, acknowledging, responding at all times in order to mm-hmm. hold the status that has been granted to me. Mm-hmm. And just as you described it, right, two projects, three projects concurrent, and you shared that percentage, I'm thinking differently about how Mm -hmm. I am spread. Yep. Yeah. And wouldn't it be a dream to just have three projects? Yeah, right. (laughs) Right? I mean, we don't keep going down the math on that because it starts to get so dismal and and discouraging. And yet we're all steeped in these kind of illusions around what it means to be a high performer, um, what it takes, you know, that this idea that being busy means we're worthwhile. Um, There's so many messages that get muddled up in there. And when I have these conversations with organizations, it's not in the context of like a well-being workshop or Mm -hmm. in a like, you know, team building workshop. We're having this conversation because we're talking about how can you get more done in your organization? How can you get better outcomes? How can you improve performance? Um, because those are really things that matter. And, and the ways that we often think that we need to do that, start everything. If it's all important, it's all got to be started. It's all got to be in progress. We constantly have to go back to back. There's no other way. I recently heard um, a leader tell me, I can't prioritize because it's all important. So we all know what our number one 10 things are. And we can't prioritize further because it's all too important. And and we get stuck in this um in this world of, you know, go, 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 and these misunderstood ideas about performance. And we disconnect that from the reality that we are human beings showing up to do good work. And there are particular ways that human beings get great work done. 
And so we need to understand these things, not just because it's good for us as humans, which it is, um, but because humans collaborating effectively together is the path to sustainable high performance and innovation and accomplishing um, better outcomes together. So we have to talk about them together. We can't separate who we are as people from the way that we work together as people. Yeah, and I think as you as you describe those workshops where you take people through, it is not a well-being workshop. It's a how we get stuff done mm-hmm. workshop. And we're in this era of sort of do more with less. And I think about the quarterly results that you that you cited before. You know, I, I would imagine in those workshops, a CFO or let's say a chief revenue officer, um, even a chief commercial officer, would listen differently if they knew that by, you know, saying to people, no, you don't have to mark these top 10 things important. Let's allow people to to do that depth and focus. It will actually take us farther and give us bigger impact. And I'm reminded of um, Greg, Greg McEwen's book, Essentialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that book was given to me by my godmother. And it was such mm-hmm. a wonderful gift because... At the time, I was in consulting. I was on the road all the time. I think I was managing seven projects. Um, mm. And I don't even want to know what the depletion of <laughs> is when you get to seven, right? Um, but essentially, what happened was I was giving fractions of fractions of fractions mm-hmm. of my time to each organization. But the other piece that was really interesting was each organization was treating me and interacting with with me as if they had 100% of my time. Yeah. As if you could take yourself, divide yourself into percentages, and within that percentage, give 100%, right? I call it, um, I call it funky math. And I wrote a whole book about about it. And the, the book is all about, it's called Real Flow. Break the burnout cycle and unlock high performance. It's all about making more tangible the heavy costs of continuing to work in these really ineffective ways. And by that, I mean like pursuing multiple competing priorities, being flooded by organizational multitasking. Um, The heavy costs of that don't often show up on the balance sheet because our balance sheets are often really siloed. You know, we aren't often looking at the cost of employee turnover when we're also looking at our quarterly like profit statements. Right. Um, those two things don't get connected directly on the balance sheet and yet they are directly impacted. And so I really wanted to find a way to make more tangible and more visible what happens not just at the individual cost of working in that way, not just the cost of to us as individuals, but I get really interested as an organizational designer in what happens when you have an entire team yeah. or an entire team of teams or an entire organization of people who are spending 40 to 60% of their brain power context switching all day long. And the flood that that creates, I call it a tax um, on our organizations and on ourselves because the reality is human beings can't be divided up into percentages of their parts. And it doesn't add back up to 100 in the way that it sounds like it ought to on the page. Um, And in working in that way, we lose out on so much of what's possible because there's just so much waste involved in that and so much harm. Yeah. And I, I think, I think back to those discussions I remember I had with 
you know, it's, it's one thing to sort of staff people that way. And to your point, we can't mm-hmm. divide me or you into seven and just be like, no problem. You'll, he'll just like manage these seven things. You know, it, it ended up getting to a point where I was changing my conversations with my customers and clients to talk more from a place like you're describing from the real experience. And, and this is how it went. <laughs> so based on what you're paying for, for a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of my time, you basically get an eyelash off this body. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and I had to sort of set that reality with them because the challenge was while we would be meeting once a week for probably no more than 10 to 15 minutes, because when you put it into the staffing structure and the consulting structure, that's really all you could give them without mm-hmm. right, um, being outside the, the revenue and, and, and profit framework. Yep. Um, by the time you say hello, they say hello, you get a little bit of context setting, some pleasantries, mm-hmm. the time is up. Yep. Well, and add to that that um, you probably didn't have everybody at that meeting that you did at the no. previous meeting. So you need to catch everybody up. And then somebody probably is leaving early. Mm-hmm. I think calendars are one of the greatest um, revealers of organizational multitasking um, it, because they help us see, you know, when you're in a situation where if the constant reality is that calendars are the hardest part of collaboration, that's a signal People are not clear on the priorities that they need to be working towards. They're all working in in competing directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I was working with a group a couple of months ago, and we were trying to pull together a group of people to do this, like, innovation work for, like, a design sprint. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to bring people together for um, a week and then have them at least work together, like, half a day each week. And the resistance was so strong to that. And they said, how about we just do an hour a week? Um, right. And we'll get done. And, and they thought that that was a reasonable, you know, alternative, but we do the math on that, right? It's four hours of time. So four hours of time, once a week over a month or four hours of time and a half a day, the math adds back Mm -hmm. up to the same, you know, the same number of hours, but the reality is it's not the same. No way. Um, and working four hours, they're collaborating one hour a week for four weeks. doesn't get you anywhere close to the outcome that would happen from collaborating for four hours all at the same time. And I think that's where we get into these funky places where the math sort of works. It seems logical on the surface and it would be so convenient if it was, it would be so very convenient. You could get so much more done if you could um, divide yourself into, you know, 20% increments Mm -hmm. and not have any cost to that. But it's just, it's just not how we can get work done. Yeah, and I remember. You know, I think the other thing. Oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead. I was I was just going to mention, like, as you described that, I remember the diagram that was in Greg McEwen's book, Essentialism, that just that just hit me. I was on a plane, and it was the diagram was so simple, and it basically showed exactly what you just described, which is, as you said, you know, the the four hours in one day, half a day, versus the four hours over the course of four weeks, and the diagram literally showed, sort of drawing an arrow. And then drawing another arrow in another direction, another arrow in another direction, another. And essentially, mm-hmm. you only get to one orbit, right? Because you've got these different arrows yep. going different direction. However, if you actually focused on the arrow and drew the arrow and kept going, you would be past many orbits. So the example of mm-hmm. four hours one day 
get you this far. Mm-hmm. Four iterations over, of an hour across four weeks probably feels like four restarts. And then you say to yourself, yep. where are we at the end of these four weeks? And you say, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. I think I'm in the first orbit. Yep. And I would say the what's happening there, the reason why that happens comes back to then how our brains work and the cost of context switching. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amount of energy we have to put to every switch means we have to reset on what's the goal here in this conversation or in this work. Who are the people that I'm with? That's the rule activation that we have to do. So the loss comes from its, its attacks um, because we're putting more energy into the context switching than into the work. It's why, um, it's one of the reasons why those two scenarios that you just described are not the same and won't result in the same outcome. The economist um, Edward Deming, he talks about these as heavy losses in organizations, and he says they're losses that are of innumerable magnitude and entirely unquantifiable, um, but they exist nonetheless. And and I think they are more quantifiable than we realize, and we have to do some work to be able to see them. But it's that kind of... Um, it's not just a loss in time spent meeting, but it's really like what would have been possible had you brought that group of people together um, and given them some time to focus? What new ideas might have emerged? Mm-hmm. What um, new ways of looking at the problem were possible? So it's not just a loss of time. It's the loss of the it's the opportunity cost. What didn't happen? Yeah because we were working in this really effective way. Yeah the, or ineffective. The way. creativity um, currency. Mm-hmm. Is is oftentimes not even tapped, right? In the in those conditions, yep. and and this this does bring me to kind of this this last set of questions I have for you that that actually has to do with again where we're at in the world right now, and that is artificial intelligence. So you've probably been reading quite mm. a bit, as I have, around this this angle around you know whether it's Chat GPT and a hundred million users signing up mm. for it, and everybody's really excited about it, or the the articles that are coming out talking about the human generative AI or the articles that are coming out talking about responsible AI. As you think about Mm -hmm. this tax and the state of flow and context switching and where we are and organizations are presently, do you think that fantasy, I'm just going to call it that right now because there's a lot of that sort of in the future, the vision will be, we will get time back. You don't have to context switch because you're gonna allow it to do it for you. Do you think those promises and um, postulations (laughs) will pan out? So much is uncertain, right, about the future. And I, here's the one thing that I will uh, say that I that I think is true about the future, that the future of work, whatever technologies exist, whatever AI is capable of, the future of effective work will always still come back to people and how we collaborate together to solve the problems, and the opportunities that are most pressing. And I think that that is the way humans have always solved challenging problems, and it will continue to be the way that we move forward together as a society. Now, what does that mean when we have new technologies like like AI in the mix? I think it's going to really reveal a lot about where we get value in our work, what the outcomes actually are that we're after. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential for 
benefit and a lot of potential for harm. But I don't think the fundamental truth is that the, that the future of work is still people is, is ever going to change. In the 1950s, um, Peter Drucker coined the term knowledge workers. And I heard you use it mm-hmm. earlier, the idea that mm-hmm. the knowledge we have and knowledge workers, he said, will be the most valuable asset of any 21st century company. And I don't think he was wrong, but I don't think he was right either. And I think that the most valuable asset is what I would call like the collaborative worker, because the knowledge itself is going to come from lots of different places. But it's really our skills in coming together and and collaborating and looking at problems differently and figuring out how to use these technologies in novel ways. So skills of collaboration that are going to allow some companies to leap forward um, and some products and, and innovations to leap forward and others to get stuck behind in a world that relies on machine learning. It's not to say machine learning isn't incredibly powerful, um, but the knowledge itself isn't enough. You can be the smartest person, you can have the best um, technology, but if you don't have a way to connect that with um, with real people who are making meaning out of what's happening around them, you will always be limited. So I think it's the collaborative worker that will be the most valuable asset of of companies moving forward. And I think it's because it's within that space of collaboration mm-hmm. that we'll figure out how to use these new technologies in the most effective ways or to resist them in the ways that they start to be used that harm us and and devolve, you know, what's possible. And I will go one further to say I absolutely agree on the collaborative worker. The other piece I will add to that that I've seen and I'm sure you can appreciate is the power of curation. So Mm-hmm. Thinking it collaboration is one thing, curating is another. And I think that has become even more rich as part of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I that's one of the blogs I read about, you know, that the shift from the knowledge worker to the collaborative worker that you had on had on your website. Mm-hmm. And I think so much about where the real sort of aha moments have come from in my career working with people that are balancing what we've talked about along with performance expectations and and goals and whatnot. And the ability to curate a lot of disparate information into an experience or um, a learning that allows that person Mm -hmm. to not only uh, grow, but succeed and then imagine and create further is, is really... I think an untapped uh, mine of wealth as we as we go forward. So when we think about these technologies blending together, um, I personally agree with you in the sense that people like you and people like me, um, I don't think we're going to be out of a job anytime soon because mm-hmm. it's the combination of everything that's happening around us that allows us to bring it back to the humanity of of what this is, mm-hmm. of why we do what we do, why we dream of going places because it's it's about connection um, and it's only in those connections and that collaboration and that curation that dreams happen uh, you know mm-hmm. opportunities come to life and and hopefully we can change the world for the better I love how you frame that as curation and I think that um, also harkens to this related idea for me when I think about curation as stewardship mm-hmm. um, and and how we make meaning. Um, out of all of the the disparate things that are happening around us. And I think that that's where um, our human potential is so so powerful because humans are actually exceptionally well adapted to evolve and to change and, and to learn. 
for me, it comes, you know, all the way back around to my kind of grounding in learning and education, which is how do, how do we learn individually? And then how do we learn together to do better and to adapt? And I think that even in the world of machine learning, machine learning is still always limited by what has been in the past. Right, what's been put in. And the randomness of what it might, you know, come up with in an algorithm for the future. And, um, and so what we need from ourselves, from each of us in our human connection is that imaginative possibility. Um, and, and that comes from making meaning and that requires our brains to be at calm, to be able to see things from a different perspective. Um, that's going to be the, the power that we need most, I think, to build and thrive communities and organizations that are, um, that are effective in doing good work in the world. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, before we wrap up, I would love for you to share with folks where they can learn more about you, um, find your book, and then um, you know possibly reach out and invite you to do some of the amazing work that we've been talking about in these times that we are in. Yeah, you can find me at realworkdone.com. The book is there, but you can also find Real Flow on Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books. Um, it's it's there, and I'd, I'd love to connect with you there, and I'd love to invite you to join the community and network of leaders who are trying to figure all of this stuff out together. Um, and so you can find information there. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where I have a lot of these conversations, um, and we're asking questions and, and exchanging information across sectors, across roles, and would love to have you join that conversation. Thank you, Brandy. I really appreciate your time. This was a wonderful conversation to have on a Friday morning as I'm as my mind's racing thinking about the world that we're in. So uh, thanks again for your time sharing your story and the amazing work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Bill. <laughs>